morning and welcome to Rising. Happy Monday and thanks for kicking off your week with us, with me and Bacha Angar Sargon, who is back in the hosting chair. Nice to see you, Bacha. Great to see you, Ravi. Good morning. Good morning. All right, why don't we get right into it? Tell us what we're talking about today. Yes, well, President Biden returned from Eastern Europe on Friday and was immediately asked whether he'd be making a trip to the site of Norfolk Southern's derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Here's what he had to say. I was I did a whole video. To, I mean, uh, you know, the, uh, what the hell? On Zoom? Zoom. Zoom. All I can every time I think of Zoom, that song of my generation, who's Zoom and who? But, uh, I, I, wait, 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 let me answer the question. The answer is that I, uh, I had a long meeting with my team and what they're doing. You know, we were there two hours after the train went down. Two hours. I've spoken with every single major figure in both United, in both Pennsylvania and in, 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 in uh, Ohio. And so the idea that we're not engaged is just simply not, not there. And initially there was not a request for me to go out even before I was heading over to, to uh, Key. So I'm keeping very close tabs on it. We're doing all we can. Meanwhile, over on Capitol Hill, members of Congress are eager to begin hearings on the matter. Three House panels and two committees in the Senate have already opened investigations. On Friday, Republicans on the House Oversight Committee sent a letter vowing to investigate Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg over his, quote, slow pace in responding to the derailment. Fears over potential health effects created by the burning of toxic chemicals in East Palestine continue to boil over even thousands of miles away from the crash. The EPA halted Norfolk Southern's disposal of contaminated firefighting water in Houston, Texas, over the weekend after facing backlash from local leaders. Now, Representative Sheila Jackson Lee told KHU11, quote, I thought it was wrong to bring toxic waste to a community 1,300 miles away with no notice to our local officials and no notice to those of us who represent parts of the area. So this story is still very much something, you know, everybody is uh, talking about and everybody obviously expressing serious concerns about, um, you know, national news figures weighing in. Trump obviously visited last week before, you know, Joe Biden hasn't visited, but Trump has visited. And, and uh, Secretary Mayor Pete Buttigieg finally making an appearance. Um, you know, wh what do you think, Bacha, ab about all of this and, and the risks? and what, you know, what should be done? I, I, it's such a terrible situation. And, you know, <laughs> Brian Kilmeade made a great point on Fox Business last week. He said, you know, even if some of these symptoms are psychosomatic, right, are due to the sense of, you know, that this is here and so they're, they're therefore feeling, you know, the effects of something because they know it's there, maybe rather than any, you know, actual, like, poisoning or what have you, that's still a really big deal. And the Democrats are supposed to be the side that cares about uh, environmentalism. They're supposed to be the side that cares about, you know, clean air and clean energy and so forth. And instead, all they're trying to do is offload responsibility onto the Republicans in this very fatuous way by focusing on deregulation when the truth is, from my understanding, it was a hot box issue um, and none of the Democrats' regulations addressed what would have fixed this, which is having more staff 
on each train. So this, the, the rail carriers have been trying to make sure that there are fewer and fewer people working each train, right? There's now two conductors. There used to be many more, and there used to ha be they had to have a maintenance person available. And now they've just been making that less and less and less in order to make more and more profits. But none of the Democrats' regulations had anything to do with that issue, the staffing issue, which is the thing that would have actually helped. And in fact, that was one of the requests that railroad workers had that President Biden himself put the kibosh on by 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 make, by forbidding huh. them to strike. If you remember a few months ago, so to me, um, you know, this is very political, and I, I just, Robbie, I do not understand why the president cannot get on a plane and go visit those people. I mean, what it would take him four hours of his life. What what he promised he was going to be the president of all Americans. President Trump went out there because he very rightly saw in these people exactly the kind of people who put him in office. Right. Forgotten Americans. Why isn't the president going out there? What would this cost him already just to show up and say, we hear you. We, we see you. We're going to make sure to make this right. We're going to make sure that you get your settlement. We are going to make sure that somebody pays for this. Like. Why doesn't he go? Do you have an answer to well, that? Well, he had an important dinner date in Kiev, right? He had a, he had better plans. And and you know what? Mm -hmm. He has been praised because he gets bipartisan praise because of the, you know the kind of blob foreign policy establishment. You know the the, the um, in our very politicized era, the most likely way to get pr like across the board praise is to make you know a big impassioned kind of militaristic speech about foreign policy and and actually. And he did get a lot of praise, even from some conservative commentators. I saw Hugh Hewitt. Um, I, I was on I was on Fox yesterday with um, with Howie Kurtz, and he played clips of of both Democratic and conservative commentators saying, "Wow, this was a really fine moment of Biden's presidency. This is a really powerful, important speech that he's giving against you know against authoritarianism, against what what Putin's doing," and. Is that that's the incentive, right? He, so of course, you know, if he's going to get praised by doing that kind of thing, that shifts his incentives to be totally focused on Ukraine and, and all of that instead of visiting, you know, working working class people who uh, didn't vote for him is probably a perspective. Some maybe if he does, I don't know that Biden is callous enough to have that, but probably people advising him do. You know, the very you know, sober-minded, rational political actors who only care about assembling a winning coalition, they're probably thinking, well, those people don't vote for us, right? I mean, and I think that what you're pointing to is something that I'm always saying ad nauseum, which is that the real divide is not over left versus right, because as you rightly point out, Robbie, there is an infinite wealth of support for foreign policy interventions among elites of both parties. The real divide is between the elites and the working class. And these East Palestine residents, they, they exactly epitomize the kind of people who used to be democratic stalwarts, right? Working class Americans who make, you know, $45,000, $55,000 a year on average, own their own single family homes, working class Americans striving for a middle class life who now are solidly Republican because the Democrats abandoned that exact way of life, that exact type of community community in order to cater to college educated elites who love things like foreign interventions, who love things like, you know, endless support for Ukraine, obsessed
obsession over Ukraine's borders while opening our borders to allow in, now we know, child laborers to work for slave labor, which is something that the New York Times reported on recently at great length. So I, I really think that this story shows, again, the class divide in this country, which is the real divide that is often masked as a political divide when it really isn't. Well, environmental activist Aaron Brockovich spoke to CBS News about the derailment. Let's hear some of that. And Norfolk being in charge chose to dig a hole and they took the liquid hazardous materials from the train cars and dumped it down that hole. Now, that's just going to go straight to the aquifer. Then they lit it on fire, which created that huge black cloud that we've all seen. And what's concerning about that is because this is organic matter and carbon and you've lit it on fire, you've created a dioxin problem that will fall out on roofs and soils and in the water. So it looks like a situation was mishandled on the upfront that created a worse scenario. You know, it's interesting because I, th I think this story is scrambling some political narrative. I mean, everyone wants to, you know, point scoring. Obviously, conservatives are you are using this opportunity to to talk about how incompetent Pete Buttigieg has been. I think that's fair. But then, you know, people on the other side will say, well, you know, weren't, you know regulations were gotten rid of by the Trump people, and then and then as you pointed out, well, those regulations didn't have anything to do with this. But um, but you know, so the EPA, for instance, has said, well, the water is safe to drink in East Palestine, and I'm thinking, well, I don't necessarily trust everything the EPA says. And in fact, the EPA is often, from my perspective and from the perspective of a lot of people on the right, a barrier to economic progress or to a barrier to progress of any kind because they want environmental action reports that would stop you from developing anything or you know having any kind of industrial work that, that would literally destroy jobs. Now, so I don't like... I don't have a lot of faith necessarily in the EPA, but so the EPA says, uh, you know, the water's perfectly safe to drink. We can drink it. You can drink it. And I think maybe some liberals, some progressive Democrats who've made the like trust the experts, trust the science as their mantra, and now they're saying, wait, well, I don't know about that water. I don't think I don't think I'm ready to drink it. I'm like, well, the experts say it's fine. You know what I mean? I think that's such a great point. Um, you know, there's certain times when it becomes very clear how important it is that the average American have a modicum of respect and trust for our institutions. And this is when it becomes so clear how woke capture by, of, by leftist elites of important institutions like the EPA or like um, you know, the CDC, right? How woke capture of these elite institutions actually ends up costing lives and harming people because average people no longer trust these institutions to have their best interests at heart. I completely understand why these people are saying, how can you tell me that this is safe when I can take a stick and go like this in this river and see that it's full of chemicals? And now we know that in Texas, um, there's bottled water that they're pulling off the shelves because it was bottled 20 miles away from East Palestine, right? We know that there is this has become a huge story. And, and what Aaron Brockovich pointed out was that a lot of the problems we're seeing now did not come from the train derailment 
but from the response to it, right? By the way that they chose to respond to it, by burying it and lighting it on fire. And I mean, that is just, that is on, I mean, if that was not the response, the responsibility Mm -hmm. of Pete Buttigieg, where is he demanding accountability? I think that's another thing you really saw last week was how so many of these people, I mean, are pure careerists. Pete Buttigieg is in that job as a pure career move. That's why he didn't want to go, because he knew there would be footage of him getting swarmed by reporters, being turned away by the people, and that would be bad for his career. He could not care less about the responsibilities involved in this job. And in fact, there was this video of him taking a photo of a journalist asking him very politely What do you have to say to the residents of East Palestine? That is a pure act of intimidation. It was a Daily Caller journalist. Yeah, we we played that last week. By by a member of the president's cabinet. That is unacceptable. Can you imagine if President Trump had done something like that? I mean, the outrage from the media. But of course, nobody cared because it was a Democrat doing it to a conservative media outlet. This whole thing has just laid bare so many of the divides in our country. Yeah, I, I think it shows you that Secretary Buttigieg is, uh, he has to actually work, and I think he's frustrated about it. I think he's, uh, he's annoyed that this, is, this position demands actual expertise that he maybe doesn't have and a lot of hard work and is not going to be this kind of cushy, easy stepping stone to what I assume is going to be a future presidential run or maybe a, maybe a Senate run. I know he's relocated to my home state of Michigan and there's going to be a Senate seat coming up in there, so we'll have to see. Uh, next up, we will talk about another case of the science maybe not being nearly as settled as some people thought. That's right, big news on the lab leak origin theory. That's on my radar coming up next. Well, Robbie, what is on your radar? The most likely origin of COVID-19 is a lab leak, the U.S. Energy Department admitted on Sunday. The federal agency reviewed new intelligence, which prompted officials to revise their position that it's unclear how the virus emerged. The White House and certain members of Congress also reviewed this intelligence, according to The Wall Street Journal. Now, the Energy Department conclusion is made with, quote, low confidence, according to The New York Times, which was quick to point out that U.S. spy agencies remain divided over the origins of the virus. But the FBI, however, has previously concluded with moderate confidence that intelligence pointed to a lab leak origin. So the significance of the Energy Department joining the list of current and former government actors who subscribe to the lab leak theory should not be understated. The agency is in charge of a vast network of national laboratories. Energy officials might have a more intuitive grasp of what could go wrong inside a biosafety lab than more traditional intelligence gatherers like those working for the CIA, which often relies on spy networks. But most of all, The shifting expert consensus on the likelihood of a lab leak origin for COVID-19 is a cautionary tale for all the would-be censors in government and the mainstream media who thunderously objected to such talk. In the first year of the pandemic, the idea that COVID-19 might have emerged from a coronavirus research facility in Wuhan, China, was branded a racist conspiracy theory. Social media companies like Facebook vigorously suppressed all discussion of lab leak, partly because U.S. health officials and mainstream news outlets expressed absolute confidence that COVID-19 emerged as a result of a spillover from animals and saying otherwise was an anti-Chinese microaggression. 
media assertions that COVID-19 definitively could not have escaped a Chinese laboratory were wrong. And they were also deafening. In February of 2020, the Washington Post attacked Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton for, quote, repeating a coronavirus conspiracy theory that was already debunked, while The New York Times accused him of spreading a, quote, fringe idea. CNN said the senator was playing a dangerous game. PolitiFact gave the lab leak theory a pants on fire rating, which is the nonprofit fact checking website's most serious level of falsehood on its trademarked truthometer. Truthometer? I don't know how to pronounce that. <laughs> NPR reported that scientists had debunked the, quote, lab accident theory, so the case was closed. CNN chided the 30% of Americans who believed a coronavirus theory that's almost certainly not true. The cable news channel also criticized President Trump for failing to heed the national intelligence community's view on the matter and gave voice to the Chinese government's obviously self-serving fear that Trump and his ilk were spreading disinformation about the Wuhan lab. Now, in hindsight, it's simply astonishing how credulously, how gullibly many mainstream reporters bought into obvious Chinese government spin. One of the very worst offenders was Apoorva Mandavili, the New York Times lead coronavirus reporter, who lamented in May of 2021 that people would dare talk about a theory with, quote, racist roots, the lab leak theory. What was racist about the lab leak theory was never well explained or interrogated by those making this charge. In fact, one could plausibly argue that the alternative explanation, animal spillover, specifically from a Chinese wet market, has implications that are far more racially problematic. After all, if wet markets are responsible for the pandemic, then the culprit is a culturally specific Chinese food custom. The lab leak theory, on the other hand, indicts an organization, the Chinese government, rather than a populace. And unlike the wet market theory, the lab leak origin also calls for scrutiny of U.S. agencies which have funded coronavirus research on bats in Wuhan, China. The truth is the truth, and investigators should pursue the origins of COVID-19 no matter where they lead. But if the goal is minimizing anti-Asian animus, there's actually good reason to prefer the lab leak explanation. Yet trackers of so-called disinformation often labeled lab leak a racist conspiracy theory. Take, for instance, the Global Disinformation Index, or GDI, a British organization that receives U.S. State Department funding. Its purpose is to dissuade advertisers from working with news websites that spread incorrect ideas. I did a radar on this last week. Now, in practice, GDI has functioned as a kind of blacklist for conservative, libertarian, and alternative news sites. In fact, it flagged Reason Magazine, where I work as an editor, as, quote, among the 10 riskiest news outlets in the U.S., ostensibly because Reason does not provide information regarding authorship, uh, we do, or possibly because we don't explain our fact-checking and correction policies, uh, we have them, they are robust, or maybe because we have an unfiltered comment section, I guess that's not allowed, that's something to be frowned upon. Uh, Hans Bader, a writer and former attorney for the Education Department, points out that a GDI report on ad-funded COVID-19 disinformation accused news websites of peddling anti-Chinese racism for accusing the Chinese government of covering up a lab leak. Another report by GDI warned advertisers against working with sites that, quote, traffic in theories that the Chinese government should be blamed for the virus's spread. So GDI and other disinformation trackers either have to start accusing the U.S. Energy Department of racism as well, or admit that it never made much sense to proactively acquit a notoriously authoritarian, secretive, and untrustworthy foreign government. Health officials and intelligence experts may not have enough information to conclusively determine COVID-19's origins, but the mainstream push to not merely deter, but actively prohibit, as was the case on Facebook, any discussion of the lab leak theory 
has not aged well. Let people discuss and debate all variety of coronavirus topics without fear of formal sanction. So, Bacha, this was a big day, obviously, for you know, those of us who have thought that, at the very least, the possibility of a lab leak, which I think is supported by a lot of admittedly circumstantial evidence, is something that deserves full investigation and full discussion. And you're not crazy for thinking that's a possibility. You're certainly not a racist for thinking it's a possibility. And it is, it is actually, it's even shocking to me to look back now and see just how many mainstream news outlets in some cases relying on very gullible health officials or maybe Chinese, Chinese government deferential health officials, were absolutely for shutting down any conversation of this, and, and it, as in fact did happen on Facebook, again, in part because of that pressure. It's just, it's, it's truly remarkable, it's odious. And now we have another, uh, as, another agent, agency within the federal government, the US federal government, saying that, yeah, lab leak is now, is now you know, it's low confidence, but we, we were undecided before, and now we're leaning in that direction. So, Robbie, what does it feel like to have been right all along where so many were wrong? It doesn't feel good. It actually feels really frustrating <laughs> because, again, I, you know, I'm, you're looking at these stories in the Washington Post, NPR, CNN, the New York Times, the New York Times reporter and poor Amanda Villi. She is the well, she's one of the most important uh, journalists with respect to covid in the country, in the world. She's their lead coronavirus reporter. And I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of issues with her reporting all, all the way along. I think it was very sensationalist and fear-mongering at times. Uh, but she tweeted that that's a racist theory, racist theory. I mean, come on. Yeah, and I think, you know, <laughs> one point people have been making is that a lot of people got this right. And those were the people who were censored because it wasn't in line with what the elites and the media wanted to push. And a large reason for that was because Donald Trump suggested it, at which point it became like completely wrong and completely verboten, just like ivermectin or anything else that he sort of mentioned because the media was waging this war on him. There's so many lessons here to be learned about humility, right, about listening to other people, about not censoring views that you don't like, which, of course, as you pointed out, happened. Um, but I think also, you know, there's no evidence that any of these people are sitting there and saying, why did we get this wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody is interested in asking that question. And I think until they do that, I mean, the American people are right to say you have to earn our trust back because you made this huge error and there is zero evidence that you are interested in figuring out why you made this huge error and how to prevent yourselves from making it again when we knew better, right? When we knew better and you were out there shaming us and smearing us for knowing this, right? How are you gonna make sure you don't do that next time around on the next story, right? And there's just no evidence that there's any desire to learn from this. So I, I, I feel sort of despondent about it when thinking about the media, but um, it's, yeah. you know, at least at least these institutions in the government are, are coming around and, and admitting the findings that they're finding. And, and this development, you know, is coming just a little bit after, it's coming on the heels, right on the heels of, 
you know, new um, studies, a review of studies on, on masking that did not find uh, the, the kind of significant evidence that masks as a population level measure that you were really seeing a lot of, uh, a lot of difference in having many fewer cases of COVID based on, you know, mass mandates as a societal intervention. It's not saying that masks don't work or there's no reason to wear them or they're not right for every person, but that they couldn't find the, they would have liked to see, the, the scientists studying this would have liked to see at the population level better evidence that it was making a difference and they didn't, they didn't find that. And again, that's something that you were punished for discussing on social media, that you were made out to be some crank. So like, I'm not here trying to pretend that you know, every contrarian COVID view was correct or something like that. But a lot of these subjects clearly deserved more dialogue, more conversation, and more debate than you were allowed to have because of the certainty of both some government scientists and then the people in media who were just parroting whatever they were telling us. And there was not there was not introspection then. There was not a lot of thinking about, well, what are the incentives? Do these people who are telling me this, do they have an incentive to downplay the Chinese government and then and also the US government. That's why the whole idea that it was racist was so ridiculous because if it's a lab, it's not, I mean, it's obviously not the Chinese people's fault either way, but this, the lab leak idea blames a specific organization and not just a specific organization, but also talks about what some of our priorities, you know, because we funded a lot of this stuff. And of course, there are people in the scientific community who would have incentive to downplay that. And that was just something that didn't register for a lot of journalists who in other circumstances would have been very discerning about the power motive, like like when it comes to Trump. They Again, they see through and they correct a lot of things that he's said or done that are wrong or bad. They just didn't have that introspection when it came to this question. And it it, uh, it, it really hurt and it really shows um, now that it's come to this. But uh, yeah, a, l a little bit of satisfaction to be able to report this, but just a lot more shock and astonishment that, uh, that, that you literally were not allowed to say this for a long period of time. So uh, we will have more rising right after this. Stay tuned, everybody. What's on your radar, Bacha? Earlier this month, hundreds of contributors to The New York Times signed an open letter condemning The Times' recent coverage of transgender issues. The letter was addressed to the paper's standards editor and described the contributors, quote, serious concerns about editorial bias and the newspaper's reporting on trans people. The letter took issue with a number of deeply reported pieces The Times had run, including one about people who regret transitioning and another about teachers who hide from parents that their children are transitioning at school. Quote, as thinkers, we are disappointed to see The New York Times follow the lead of far-right hate groups in presenting gender diversity as a new controversy warranting new punitive legislation, the contributors wrote, naming outright those of their colleagues whose work they felt warranted comparison to hate groups. A second coordinated letter from the Gay and Lesbian Alliance against defamation, known as GLAD, along the same lines, was co-signed by a slew of Hollywood types, influencers, and celebutants. Conservatives reading this may be chuckling to themselves at the idea that the New York Times is viewed by the radical left as a bastion of conservatism, standing athwart puberty blockers and whispering, please slow down just a tiny bit. Indeed, the New York Times is no longer just liberal, as it has been for most of its history. It's woke. As I chronicled extensively in my book, Bad News, the New York Times was at the forefront of mainstreaming, mainstreaming what sociologists called the Great Awakening. 
the infiltration into liberal mainstream of radical academic ideas about race and gender steeped in logical fallacies straight out of French post-war philosophy. Powered by a status revolution among journalists and a business model catering to over-credentialed elites, legacy journalism was captured by a worldview that masks the economic privilege of its adherents by mapping power onto identity categories and valorizing weakness and victimization. Anyone who reads The Times knows this instinctively, but computer scientist David Rosado proved it, proved it with data. He created a computer program that scanned The Times online archive from 1970 to 2018 and found that words like racism, white supremacy, traumatizing, marginalized, and hate speech had skyrocketed. His work joined that of political scientist Zach Goldberg, who found a strong correlation emerge between 2012 and 2016 between Google search interest in race-related topics and the prevalence of stories in the New York Times about racism, privilege, people of color, white tears, white splaining, structural racism, and slavery. In fact, last week's letter denouncing the Times' coverage of trans issues echoes another letter in which Times contributors and writers protested their colleagues. That letter, sent at the height of the George Floyd riots in 2020, protested an op-ed written by Senator Tom Cotton, which argued that if local police failed to quell rioters and looters, then President Donald Trump should send in the National Guard. Though the op-ed expressed a view held by 58% of Americans and 37% of Black Americans, over 1,000 Times employees signed a letter to the publisher which claimed that the op-ed, quote, undermines the work we do in the newsroom and in opinion and is an affront to our standards for ethical and accurate reporting for the public's interest. Now, that letter was not published, but a huge public campaign on Twitter accompanied it with the biggest names at the Times tweeting a screenshot of the op-ed with the caption, quote, running this puts black New York Times staff in danger. The jury is still out on how many who tweeted this actually believed it. In mentioning workplace danger, the tweet deployed language the News Guild of the New York Times insisted was legally protected speech because it focused on workplace safety. Nevertheless, the campaign was effective after what one attendee called a bloodthirsty struggle session of angry backbiting staffers demanding that heads roll. The New York Times fired James Bennett, its opinion editor. To this day, a vast and embarrassing editor's note is attached to the op-ed. So given this history, it was surprising when instead of caving to the pressure from last week's letter on trans coverage, Times leaders exoriated the signatories. Quote, we do not welcome and will not tolerate participation by Times journalists in protests organized by advocacy groups or attacks on colleagues on social media and other public forums. Executive editor Joseph Kahn and opinion editor Kathleen Kingsbury wrote in an email, quote, participation in such a campaign is against the letter and spirit of our ethics policy. Now, the Guild asserted in a letter journalists' right to criticize the paper over, quote, workplace conditions, yet a group of high-profile New York Times journalists fired back, insisting that, quote, factual, accurate journalism that is written, edited, and published in accordance with Times standards does not create a hostile workplace. Everyday partisan actors seek to influence, attack, or discredit our work. We accept that, the letter reads. But what we don't accept is what the Guild appears to be endorsing, a workplace in which any opinion or disagreement about Times coverage can be recast as a matter of workplace conditions. 
where was this backbone, one wonders, this understanding of the role of journalism and the importance of debate and viewpoint diversity back in that long time ago of 2020? What changed that allowed the Times to rediscover that opinions people don't like are not unsafe workplace conditions, indeed are integral to good journalism? The New York Times is less a leader of opinion and more a bellwether for what it's safe to say in affluent upper crust liberal circles. And apparently it's now safe to admit that people who detransition exist, that some are miserable, and that many are mortified at what's being allowed to be done to children. This too isn't just a feeling. There's quantitative evidence, again from David Rosado, that the Great Awakening is winding down. Starting 2012, victim narratives had been correlated strongly with positive terminology on Twitter, but the trend seems to have peaked and is now on the downswing. To what do we owe the end of the chokehold wokeness had on elite liberal discourse? To me, it seems clear that it was the rejection by mainstream black Americans of woke ideas like defund the police or the idea that uh, marginalized people of color are somehow never able to overcome their marginalization. Black Americans are similarly not on board with trans extremism. And this rejection also explains the progression in leftist activist circles from a moral panic around race to one around trans issues over the past three years, represented by this tale of two letters. And in a way, it also explains how the Times found its backbone. The average American believes racism is terrible and wants to be as far as possible from any association with it. The average American, 64% of us, also wants transgender people to have protections in the workplace and against housing discrimination. But they do not agree with New York Times activists that it is bigotry to question children transitioning or trans women competing on girls' sports teams. The moral panic around race was much more intensive and destructive than the one around trans issues is shaping up to be. For the simple reason that racial oppression was real for much of our history, and racism still exists in some corners of American life, though thank God not many are left. There is at least a reasonable argument to be made that the burden of proof falls on those arguing that racism is no longer the threat it used to be and not on those who can't see the progress, especially in the weeks and months following a video like that of George Floyd's murder. This is not to justify the Times' craven cowardice in the face of the moral panic of 2020, but to explain it, to explain the terror someone might have felt for publicly dissenting, though some had the courage to do so even then. Michael Powell, for example, who wrote a counter letter supporting Bennett. But when it comes to the transgender issue, especially regarding children making irreversible changes to their bodies that in some cases prevent sexual pleasure and the possibility of having their own children for life, the burden of proof that allowing this is the civil rights cause rather than preventing it falls to those encouraging medical intervention on behalf of a very new and socially contagious phenomenon that we know is correlated in many cases with a mental health crisis. And the activists on this issue simply have not yet met the burden of proof. It was about time the New York Times found its backbone. Here's hoping they keep it. So, Robbie, have you been following this whole letter and the brouhaha around it? Yes, of course. And uh, I was very pleased to see the New York Times uh, defend defend itself, really, defend its own uh, reporting on this subject, which I think has been uh, pretty good, especially as of late. Um, it, it not The reporting has not been at all 
anti-trans people or condemning of trans people uh, or, or, or at all on board with you know, the policy aims of Republicans on this issue in many places. It simply pointed out that a lot of this science is new and unsettled, and very importantly, that peer countries of ours that were a little bit more encouraging and permissive of what young people were able to do in terms of uh, gender care um, are now rethinking some of that. Uh, and that is, I think that's that's notable. It's fine to report on that. It's fine to talk to people who've who've had it and regretted it or, or, or wanted to have it and didn't end up having it and are, are are glad that that was the outcome. Uh, you know, without that is not a sweeping condemnation. That's not saying it's wrong for everyone. Uh, I would I would just like there to be um, a lot more investigating and and make sure making sure that this is best the best thing and healthiest for the kids who signal that they want to pursue it and it's not for social reasons or for something else. And I'm not, look, I'm not going to you know sit here and say they can't do that, but there needs to be at least a little bit more probing or questioning or interrogating of if this is the best thing for the vast majority of people, of young people who walk through those clinic doors. And I don't, I don't know if you read that really terrifying piece, I thought it was terrifying at least, for, uh, uh, for the Free Press, for Barry Weiss's journalism project by someone who worked in a gender clinic. And she, she again, she, this person was saying, she affirms transgender people. She, does, she chose to work there because she thinks the work is important. But she said over time, she has seen a lot of people coming through the doors, young people. It used to be mostly young men. Now it's much more so young women. And they all come from the same high school at the same time. And they're all, you know, they can get, they can have one visit and, it, and all of a sudden they're down the path towards some, some things that cannot be corrected, that are permanent. And she, has a, she thinks it's way too hasty. There's not enough interrogating if, whether that's the best thing for these young people. Not saying they can't have it, but it needs to be interrogated and it's not happening, which is exactly what many people are worried about, many families and parents are worried about. So the idea that you wouldn't be able to report on that is just is frankly ridiculous. So good on the New York Times for standing up for itself. Absolutely. And hope to see more of this from lots of other outlets um, following their lead now that they've broken the taboo on it. And uh, we will have much more rising right after this. Actor Woody Harrelson hosted Saturday Night Live this weekend and used his opening monologue to criticize Big Pharma's response to COVID-19. The movie goes like this. The biggest drug cartels in the world get together and buy up all the media and all the politicians and force all the people in the world to stay locked in their homes. And people can only come out if they take the cartel's drugs and keep taking them over and over. I threw the script away. I mean, who is gonna believe that crazy idea <laughs> being forced to do drugs? I do that voluntarily all day long. <laughs> anyway, it's about that time. Still no Jack. Okay. Well, we got a great show for you tonight. Jack White is here, so stick around. We'll be right back. <laughs> so that was interesting. Um, he was, uh, yeah, so he was making the point that what the government did in forcing everyone to stay in their homes for a long period of time, and then you can only rejoin society if you get vaccinated, is akin to that very dystopian, authoritarian kind of thing he just described. I bet there was a little bit of discomfort in the audience over that. They're like, wait, hey, wait a minute. Are you saying 
you know, that, that you think big pharma is our cartel and that we're all being forced to take drugs because, because of vaccine requirements. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't know. What do you think the reaction was from the New York crowd, Bacha? Um, so to me, the most telling thing is how he has to pivot to like, I love drugs. Like he has to signal to mm -hmm. the liberal audience, I'm still one of you, because obviously no conservatives could be watching this. And it reminded me a lot of we've been watching this show on HBO called The Last of Us. Are oh, you watching this? I just show? so I just start last night. I know I'm I know I'm way behind. I started watching it last night, so I got like halfway through the first episode, and I liked it. And I'm, I am familiar with the video game a little bit. Um, I'm enjoying it. it it's. It's kind of reminded me of the movie Children of Men. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but maybe it'll... Yes. I like that movie. Um, what's interesting about it is it's about government overreach to a pandemic. I don't know if you've gotten that far, but the government becomes extremely Nazi-like in responding to this pandemic. And it's actually very conservative in terms of if you think about how this discourse played out in America, but you'll see how three episodes in, it pivots to having an arc about... Um, a gay couple. And I, I think that worked a lot in the same way that Woody Harrelson pivoting to how much he loves drugs worked, which is to signal to HBO's mm. elite liberal audience, like, D don't worry, guys, you know, we're not taking this too far. You know, we're not, God forbid, like those conservatives, we're still the good guys, right? We still have this other thing that tethers us to you. And I don't know that I necessarily think that's bad, right? I mean, introducing these ideas that are considered very conservative ideas, like government overreach, like how horrible lockdowns were, how incredibly um, um, divisive and bad for civil liberties. They were like introducing that to a liberal audience, I think is a really worthy cause. And it's just amusing to see how they know that their audience is liberal. They understand that SNL and HBO, right? That the, the people they're catering to are going to be people who have a problem with this. Um, and they have to in some way go out of their way to make sure that they know that they're, you know, they still have them on these other issues. That's so, so I just started it last night. I only got halfway through it, so I had not yet made that connection. But now that you brought it up, I totally see. Yeah, there's a there's like a curfew. I they were gonna ex they're executing people for being like out in, out of the zone they were supposed to be in. I just got introduced yeah. to like the rebel group. Um, yeah, I see the I see the lockdown kind of uh, kind of connection. And I right, I had heard that there was a, a the the third episode is controversial for a number of reasons. But um, uh, right, a, a gay storyline. I saw some conservatives complaining that it was like, you know, it was kind of put in there for doesn't fit or something. I mean, there are people who would be mad about anything. But uh, but I, I see why you might say that was their attempts to pivot and be like, no, 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 we're, but we're still, we still have a liberal outlook, even though we're attacking exactly. you know, lockdowns and authoritarian government and how it would use you know, concerns about your safety and your health to cl claim these massive powers for itself that restrict human liberties. But exactly. we're pro-gay, so it's OK, <laughs> something like that. Uh, well, uh, Harrelson also had this to say while in conversation with Bill Maher. Ivermectin got made into a, you know, horse tranquilizer, uh, a horse, whatever it is. Which it is, but also used by humans. It's used by millions and millions, millions of humans. Uh, uh, hydroxychloroquine got uh, made ridiculous. Um, and there was only one thing that could work, and that's the vaccine, right? And so ultimately, because of that, billions of dollars was made. Hmm. Um, and here's, here's my problem with this, is like, 
Um, okay, so they were wrong about COVID. They were wrong about identity politics. They were wrong about intersectionality. They were wrong about environmentalism, right? Bill Maher just admitted a couple weeks ago that he himself is a hypocrite because he flies private, right? But it, this never makes them take the next step and say, well, maybe they were wrong about Trump, right? Maybe they were mm. wrong about this other stuff. Like maybe they were wrong about demonizing Republicans. Maybe they were wrong about, right? There's always a limit, like a hard limit, even to those who have acknowledged the woke excesses. And, you know, it's funny because like they're not accidentally wrong about COVID. They were wrong about COVID for the same reasons they're wrong about everything else. They have this class bias that blinds them to the reality of what normal people are like, which comes straight out of universities where they're taught a bunch of stuff that gives them brainworms. okay? Like, it's not like a mystery of how they got COVID wrong, right? Mm -hmm. But these people who can see that the COVID was nonsense, they could see it in, in, you know, this issue or that issue, but they'll never take on the larger, more fundamental problem, which is that these people think that they're on the side of the little guy, but actually they're on the side of like a combination of elitism and upward mobility for for meritocratic elites and then sustaining the poor in a way that they'll never be able to rise on their own, right? Like they never take that next step and say that there's like a real fundamental problem that goes much deeper than that. And by the way, Robbie, this is a critique of the right as well, because the right will be like, oh, they're wrong on the trans issue because they hate children. It's like, no, it's not because they hate children. Like there's an obvious but much deeper thing here. And I just feel like if everyone could get to that next mm. level, we'd have a much more productive conversation conversation. Yeah, and there was a lot, obviously, that people got wrong about COVID uh, on all sides. Like, I, I mean, Woody Harrelson there was kind of trying to imply some kind of, to my mind, not correct equivalency, even though uh, I think the vaccines have been oversold and they didn't, they did not uh, end up, you know, having as much of a positive impact on cases as we wanted them to have, still more in just the kind of severe disease category, especially for at-risk people. Um, I, I have yet to see any good evidence that ivermectin does anything at all. In fact, there was more bad news for the ivermectin people. Uh, look, you don't have to take it from me. Alex Berenson, who is among the most, like, strident critic of vaccines, you know, very much in the COVID contrarian camp. I've argued with him in the past. Um, but even he, he, he actually, he's, I saw that he's going to do a debate with Pierre Corey, who's like the main ivermectin pro promoter or something, because he's like, look, there's just no evidence. You, you, can, you can, you know, not be all about vaccine requirements or, 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 or all of that stuff without like endorsing every other product that, that any contrarian person put forth. So I think... I don't know that like those people have have aged well um, either because it, it just I, like I, I've yet to see any evidence. Now it's not obviously the media went over its skis and saying this is right that's that's all horse tranquilizer because you do give it to humans. It's not maybe harmful in the way they suggest. It is something people take, but I don't know that the people on the right or in whatever category who were like, oh, this is the thing. I don't think I, I think it's okay I, to say I mean, they were wrong too. I know people personally, multiple people who took it and fe like immediately felt that had that kind of, but who knows if that's psychosomatic yeah. or not, right? Like it, it requires a lot more evidence and a lot more investigation. Sadly, you know, we didn't get that from the people who are in charge of like, right. you know, the evidence-based stuff because they actually- I'd probably put those in people in the same stuff. category of people who are like, oh, I have long COVID, but I also have like long-term anxiety or something. Like, why is it that ever, the people who mm -hmm. say they have long COVID are also very much- disproportionately likely to have already reported um, 
long-term anxiety like around the mental health problem. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it raises yeah. the question of yeah. hypochondria and kind of self a confirmation of something you already wanted to believe. Um, all right, well, well or, that doesn't. Yeah, psychosomatic. And we don't have to. We don't have to judge yeah. them. You know, like I believe that the, what they're feeling is real. You know, but it's. Um, you know, we could say it's psychosomatic, social contagion. Yeah. You know, all of these. Things, all the systems are related: the physical, the spiritual, the psychological. Hmm. We'll all right, have we'll more have rising more rising right in just a minute. <laughs> Stay tuned. Beijing will have to make its own decisions about how it proceeds, whether it provides military assistance. But if it goes down that road, it will come at real cost to China. And I think China's leaders are weighing that as they make their decisions. That was U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on CNN State of the Union weighing in on the anniversary of the Ukraine war, warning China against lending any support to Russia. China hasn't give, given Russia lethal aid, but according to the White House, they haven't ruled it out, a move that the U.S. says would be a mistake. Here to weigh in on how the Russia-Ukraine conflict is adding to already strained U.S.-China relations is Gordon Chang, author of The Coming Collapse of China and the Great U.S.-China Tech War. Welcome, Gordon. Thank you so much, Bacha and Robbie. Yeah, it's great to have you. Uh, obviously, this is a very uh, pivotal moment in the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, strained for a number of reasons, and Biden visiting Ukraine uh, last week on the anniversary of the conflict with Russia. Um, what do you expect China to do, with, if anything, with respect to, to Russia's position in Ukraine? I expect China to actually um, show even more support for Russia. Uh, China's been all in from the very beginning of this conflict. And from the beginning of this conflict, China has been providing lethal assistance to Ukraine, to Russia. Um, and we've seen this, especially, you know, this last couple of weeks, there were the reports that China was selling drones to the Wagner Group for use in the war. Also, the Breaking Defense website reports that almost every day, an AN-124, which is the largest cargo plane in the world, leaves Zhengzhou in China. That's the central part of the country carrying ammunition and other high consumption rate items. I think Jake Sullivan and others in the administration need to stop saying that China is contemplating this. Um, they either need to explain to the American public why all of these reports are wrong, or they need to actually come to grips with reality in that China is actually helping the Russians with lethal assistance at this moment. You know, Gordon, that's a great point. I, I have to say, I, something I find extremely frustrating is that when it comes to Ukraine's security and safety, the U.S. is willing to speak about China and to China in this extremely aggressive, hawkish way and say, don't you dare, you know, everybody has decided we're all going to help Ukraine and nobody's allowed to help Russia, right? But when it comes to our national security, when it comes to balloons flying over U.S. airspace, when it comes to China undercutting the U.S. market, they have nothing to say. It's all appeasement 100% of the time. I mean, am I right to, to notice this discrepancy? No, you're absolutely right to notice that discrepancy. Um, the Biden administration has a China policy, I assume, but what we are seeing are, are really very disconnected pieces of it. And clearly, the I think the Biden team has not come to grips with reality about what is actually occurring. They are not moving fast enough. Because one thing, China is preparing to go to war. And it's showing utter disrespect for the United States. 
And we can see this with that balloon flight. I mean, why did they think that they could get away with it? We see it, for instance, with their establishment of permanent police stations in the U.S. Fortunately, the one in New York is now closed. But the fact is, they, they felt that they could get away with opening it. And we see all sorts of other signs that China believes that the United States is in terminal decline and they no longer have to deal with the Biden administration. I'm not saying that their assessment is correct. I'm just saying that's the way they think and we can see it in their actions. Mm. Mm -hmm. Well, last Thursday, China released a 12-point plan aimed at brokering a peace deal between Russia and Ukraine in which it called for a ceasefire. Asked about what he thought of China's proposed plan, President Biden told ABC News it was not, quote, rational and that it would only benefit Russia. Do you agree with that assessment? I do not agree with that assessment. China's plan is rational if you have no respect for the United States. Now, Biden was saying it wasn't rational because it only benefited Russia. Well, yeah, that's true. And it certainly was, I think, misguided and certainly not helpful. But the point is that China thought that it could issue such a plan because it did not have to take into account the views of other countries. So it, once again, it shows China's mentality. And Biden has not yet come to terms with the fact that China doesn't think that he's a factor. Now, I, I, I believe China's wrong in that. But the point is, it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what China thinks, because that's going to guide it to do things which are extraordinarily dangerous. And Biden needs to start to understand that. You know, Gordon, a, a few years ago, <laughs> not too distant in the, in the past, um, you know, in a debate between Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, um, when asked what the biggest threat to the United States was, Mitt Romney said Russia, and, and President Obama at the time, um, candidate Obama, he laughed at him. That was considered a ridiculous point of view. Fast forward to today, and that is the view that the Democrats seem to have assumed. Walk us through how that reversal happened. I think that the invasion of Ukraine certainly had a lot to do with that. Um, and, and clearly, um, you know, I, I disagree with Romney because I thought China was the biggest threat to the United States. Russia can pose a threat to the U.S. only because China has backing it. Um, but the point is, um, you know, we have seen um, things occur over the last couple of years which were once inconceivable. And that shows us that the international order is breaking down. Um, that deterrence is no longer uh, viable because we are seeing that the Russians and the Chinese, in fact, are not deterred by us. So Biden has to reestablish deterrence. Reestablishing deterrence is one of the most dangerous things. Um, clearly, Biden is not up to it at this moment because he doesn't even perceive the problems. Well, now, what would you make of the argument, though, that China might maybe think twice about for instance, grabbing Taiwan, if it's looking clearly at how Europe and the U.S. has responded to Russia invading Ukraine, they've responded with an open-ended, perhaps permanent commitment to supply as many weapons and as much money to the Ukrainian defense as necessary. If, if, uh, if, a, if a Putin-type person thought this was going to be easy and there were going to be no consequences, it was certainly wrong in that respect. Um, is China contemplating a similar thing? I think China is contemplating an invasion of Taiwan because we know that they are, in fact, preparing to go to war. It's not only the military buildup, Robbie, but it's also Xi Jinping trying to sanction-proof his regime. 
and the mobilization of civilians for war. Now, I don't know how the Chinese, in fact, view um, Ukraine. But, you know, the argument you gave me is plausible. But I think a better argument is that China is not deterred because um, the United States, the European Union and Great Britain were not able, in fact, to prevent Russia from invading, even though the EU, US, Britain had an economy 25.1 times larger than Russia's in 2021. And we still couldn't stop him from invading in February of last year. Also, the sanctions have not been applied to stop Russia. Um, they've caused pain to, to Russia, but they have not, effect, had not had the effect that we wanted them to. And so I think the Chinese see that as well. And I believe that the Chinese, and this is a guess, but I believe the Chinese are less deterred over Ukraine than they were before with regard to Taiwan. And what about the Chinese economy? I mean, we're hearing, you know, reports that there's trouble brewing there. There's a housing crisis. How does that impact China's decision about mobilizing for war? Yeah, China's economy in last year did not grow 3.0% as the Beijing reports. It probably fell about 3% because, among other things, they were fooling around with their inflation deflators. Um, but, you know, right now, you know, this year, China's economy is still stumbling. It might grow this year because last year was so bad. But as you point out, the property prices are still falling. That's a major issue and a political issue in China because 70% of the wealth of the middle class is tied up in apartment units. I think that this is a factor that pushes Xi Jinping to go to war because he wants to distract the Chinese people from his domestic policy mistakes, for which he has no answers, by the way. So a, a war would actually solve a lot of his issues. And, and we've got to remember, this guy can take us by surprise. He's extremely willful. And we have a White House and a Pentagon that has no sense of urgency over what's going on in Asia. Gordon Chang, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Bacha and Robbie. We'll have more Rising right after this. Uh, Elon Musk accused the media of racism against white and Asian people after U.S. newspapers dropped a comic strip author, Scott Adams, who made comments about white Americans staying away from black Americans who think it's not okay to be white, who he called a hate group. The Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, and USA Today were of the newspapers that canceled the Dilbert cartoon. Let's watch the comments that he made. So if, if you know, nearly half of all blacks uh, are not okay with white people, according to this poll, not according to me, according to this poll, uh, that's a hate group. That's a hate group. And I don't want to have anything to do with them. And I would say, you know, based on the current way things are going, the best advice I would give to white people is to get the hell away from black people. Just get the f away. Wherever you have to go, just get away. Because there's no fixing this. This can't be fixed. So Adam said on his YouTube channel, just to summarize what that was, if nearly half of all blacks are not okay with white people, that's a hate group and I don't want to have anything to do with them. Uh, we reached out to Adams for comment and we would love to have him on the show if he's willing to do that. So we'll keep you updated with respect to that. Uh, joining us now to weigh in is Newsweek contributor Denise Long. Welcome, Denise. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So, look, I, 
have been very critical of what often gets described as cancel culture, what constitutes cancel culture. You know, it has an amorphous definition. No two people can quite agree. This, you know, this idea I think a lot of us are comfortable with that people are going to face disproportionate sanction for saying something wrong or something bad or something that wouldn't have been controversial a, a little bit ago but is suddenly controversial. All that said, I, I mean, these remarks seem extremely indefensible to me. I, I, I'm, <laughs> I don't understand how he could have expressed. They're, they're just very bad. Um, and and he and he it's not he says it and then oh he like went too far and takes it back he like he says it over and over again so so he's responding to this poll that supposedly found some number of black people um, disagreeing with the idea that it's okay to be white and then based on that you know he said he said he made those comments he said so I, I want to bring you in here uh, to react what are your views on this situation. Well, there was a lot to dissect in the video, uh, his original and lengthy YouTube video, including the fact that he identified as black and has decided to identify as white. So I want to thank him for giving us the white male Rachel Dolezal. But <laughs> regarding this issue, I think there are a few things that are lost in translation. This Rasmussen poll um, was really assessing the extent to which Amer the views of a thousand Americans reflected what the uh, SPLC had said that, you know, it's okay to be white as a statement was hate speech. And the reason that SPLC classified it as hate speech is because that phrase, it's okay to be white, um, was used, uh, it started on 4chan where they were telling people, you know, you know, all of this stuff is going on with wokeism and all the thing, right? And so what we need to do is let people know it's okay to be white, plaster that across your university campuses and on buildings. And that's what happened over Halloween. That's when they told people to do it. You know, they gave a whole on 4chan, this user gave a whole directive about how to plaster this. And so that, that statement, it's okay to be white, was used as a way to counter the narrative about diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism. So it was sort of the all lives matter response to Black Lives Matter. I think that's lost in translation, as far as I can tell, about the, how the question was framed that Rasmussen uh, asked the respondents. And I will also say, if I may, that depending on how a person understands what white is will color, pardon the pun, how they interpret what you're asking me. So if I know that it's okay to be white is either classified as hate speech or I read the articles about what happened on university campuses when people woke up the day after Halloween and saw all this, that will address it. If I think you're asking me, is it okay for people of European descent to exist? If that's what I think you mean white is, that's a different question. If I see white as an inherently political identity, so here I'm pulling in the typical anti-racism uh, speak, then I respond differently about that. So there's nuance here that I think is lost both in the poll question and also in people's understanding of the history and context. And he goes beyond just say, you know, he starts by saying, you know, I don't want to associate with people who would have answered that way on, on that poll. And, and then I, I totally hear what you're saying for why that itself deserves greater context. But then he does quickly go beyond that into saying, well, then not, not just the group of people who responded that way, but all black people are a hate group, and I don't want to have anything to do with any of them, and I think you should separate from them. And, and that's when it got pretty, you know, maybe the first thing I don't think was necessary is, is cancelable or deserving of cancellation. Um, but then he does start saying that, like, 
all white people should avoid all black people, and then now we're just practicing like very broad racial collectivization and stereotyping that is uh, that is totally antithetical to what I believe. Um, I guess not what Scott Adams believes, but. Yeah, so the question is, who hurt Scott? And I guess when he read this poll, it really hit him in an emotionally charged way because much of what he said, like the cadence, so this, the cadence that he was speaking, right? Mm -hmm. Just the way he was speaking communicated to me and the words he chose. You know, I've always helped black people. I even identified as black. It felt like a, he came from a really wounded place in his dialogue. And so I agree with you, Robbie, that the point at which he said, I, chose a predominantly white neighborhood and I did this and I did that in response to my perceptions of, you know, black people and their hood, uh, that's where it became really problematic. So I think, I think in some ways with DEIA, and I've written about this for Newsweek, we kind of lose the plot about why we're engaged in this. We're engaged in this deliberate conversation about race and racism and how we should show up about it because we didn't do that after the Civil War, right? We just freed people and said, go forth and be free. We didn't deliberately have a conversation during after the Civil Rights Movement and integration as a nation about how do we fully integrate people, Negroes, American Negroes, into the fabric of America. So now at this point, we're trying to have this conversation about diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism in an intentional way. And still at the same time, it's we've lost the plot about what it takes to do that well and the fact that people will mess up because no one has told us how to do it well. And at the same time, part of getting there is to have difficult conversations and it's not just touchy topics because the topic is hot. It's touchy because you have to really handle it in a skilled way. And I think Scott kind of went off the rails in his way of engaging in this conversation, though he clearly wants to be involved in how we handle race and racism in America. Wow, Denise, you are so much more forgiving and understanding and compassionate than I am because I I, I, I like Robbie. I, I was reading all the articles about this and, you know, they didn't have the video embedded. They didn't have, you know, much of the quote. And I kept thinking, you know, there's so much cancel culture out there. There's so much extremism from the far left about identity politics. You know, I'm sure that, you know, it's not as bad as they're making it out to be. And I went and I watched it and I just thought that clip, I just thought, my God, how do you let yourself say something like that? Um, you know, I think what he saw this poll and felt, I agree with you that he, he seems very wounded by this, you know, this idea that they, you know, so many black Americans would say, you know, that phrase, it's okay to be white is not okay with them. Um, but at the same time, there's zero evidence that that is, you know, resulted in any kind of racial violence that any white people are actually like, you know, in some like larger sense in danger from black people, you know, that that's just right. not happening. We know that over 95% of, of crime is intraracial. Uh, so, mm. so the idea of manufacturing from this poll a threat and then putting that out there to your millions and millions of followers, um, it, it just seems heinous to me. And one of these few examples of, you know, I, I think they were right to, to, to cancel him. That was just pure racism and revealed a point of view that is on the lookout for black wrongdoing. That That's what I saw in this. Someone on the lookout for black wrongdoing to justify a point of view that perhaps preceded it. That I can't, that's kind of what I'm seeing here. What, what, what do you think? 
<laughs> well, well stated, and I wouldn't say I was forgiven because I drug Scott, Scott over Twitter as well. <laughs> um, so, uh, and as a matter of fact, I'm hosting a Twitter space where we're t talking about the poll and this whole idea of where do we go from here with the idea that critical conversations and these touchy topics are just part of the process. What I will say though is what you hit on is the idea that there is no free speech. All, there's no cost free speech. All speech has cost. And when someone like Scott, like it or not, he's a white man. He is a popular white man with a following. I think he has like 700,000 followers or something like that on Twitter. And for him to speak so carelessly and recklessly, this idea that black people are a danger to white folks and y'all just need to leave them alone, given the context of America and given what I have said is there is an undercurrent of anti-black uh, sentiment in the United States that is just below the surface. And with the proper dog whistle, as we like to politely call it, but racist sentiment, the idea that black people are dangerous and these big black folks are going to be coming after you, you will incite that sort of uh, anti-black yeah. sentiment. And that is dangerous for black people. Yeah. I think Scott now, I hope, realizes the weight that his voice carries, both as someone with a platform as well as a white man in America. And there is a double standard. There are things that black people can say about white people that white people just can't say because no matter what I say, the likelihood that any black person or white person in America is going to get harmed by it or slim to none. I cannot say the same depending on the platform, the following, the tone and color of speech that uh, popular white folk might issue. And this well, is an example. Well, let's play Adam's uh, response to his own ca cancellation. He said this on YouTube. Including the cancellations, this was all predictable. And I knew it when I said it. And I was okay with it. I'm okay with it. So, look, th this is hard to. I, I suspect. I, so I, I listen to Scott Adams every now and then. I, I see a lot of his tweets. He's very engaged on social media. He talks on YouTube for a long period of time. He does this kind of has coffee, takes audience questions. He's very engaged with the people listening to him. Um, he strikes me as somewhat sensitive in terms of his engagement. I, I've seen him. You know, get even get kind of light criticism and get very, um, uh, very uncomfortable with it. Um, I think he, you know, he someone who blocks maybe more easily, or you know, even people who seem like they're otherwise sympathetic to him. Um, a lot on a lot of COVID stuff. I think he clashed with some of his viewers who were more anti-vaccine than he was, even though he was a COVID. He was a contrarian on many COVID subjects. Um, that's a long way of saying that, I, look, I don't think, like, social media isn't good and healthy for everyone. <laughs> Certain, being too able to kind of have constant feedback and negative engagement with people all over Earth is not always healthy. And um, do you know what I'm getting at? And I, I, I wonder if that's kind of, he worked himself. I mean, you talked about how it sounds emotional. He sounds like he's... A, mm -hmm. Like reacting to something, I wonder if it's if it's just I'm not trying to like acquit him of racism or say oh well you know he was just having a bad day or something like that. But do you know what I'm getting at? That it's almost the circumstances that he's in that was forcing something ugly to the surface, and that should really be a cautionary tale for kind of like a lot of people who are too online. Yeah, it's everywhere, Robbie. So I participate in a lot of different spaces. I get information from the left 
uh, as much as I can and from the right <laughs> as much as I can and then all of the spans in the middle. But there's a way that the pot has been stirred about anti-white racism that uh, the DEIA conversation as we tend to have it now with CRT leading the way, the idea that America still has anti-black racism and racism broadly baked into it, that tends to, in my observation of implementing this stuff and in, in watching how this plays out in social media, that tends to activate a certain reaction from folks who various people, those who don't want to see race and want to operate at a colorblind level, as well as those who are against wokeness and wokeism and the idea that we need to have DEIA in the first place and particularly uh, take offense to the way that it's currently done. So yeah, there's a pot stirring that happens here that I think has people on edge and particularly I think white people and white men in particular, because let's face it, a lot of the rhetoric about diversity, equity, inclusion and anti-racism now is that everybody is a minority except for white, straight white men because they are the oppressors. And so there's some ways where we in the DEIA implementation community really need to look at our processes while at the same time recognizing we're not gonna, like you say, we're not going to acquit Scott. And at the same time, what are the proper levels of consequences that should happen when people go out there and make a whole mess of themselves? Because while everybody has a race, not everybody is able to facilitate a well-run, well-facilitated conversation about racism. And when we mess it up, do we stay canceled forever? Like, what are the gradients? Mm -hmm. And right now mm -hmm. I see on the far left, there's grab your stones, let's go get them. And on the far right, there's there's nothing to see here, just ignore it. So where's the midpoint? And I think heterodox thought leadership has a real role to play in this. Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. It, you know, what you, the point you're making is that, you know, it can both be the case that, um, you know, that 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 there is you know, there is obviously no threat from the black community to the white community and be the case that there is still racism against black Americans and be the case that those who want to address that racism can do so in a way that makes white men feel um, mm. insecure, forgotten, left behind, disadvantaged. And that that is that is something that must be taken seriously, that deserves our compassion and that we, you know, you can't just ignore that. And, you know, I think, you know, at the end of the day, you know, Scott Adams thinks that he's like, you know, other people who were canceled for microaggressions or for jokes, but he mm -hmm. wasn't. He was canceled for saying something deeply shameful and deeply racist. And I would be surprised to see if there's like a big conservative movement to like rehabilitate him or defend him. I, I'm really hoping there isn't going to be one. I mean, if he was like a host on a conservative news channel or, cons or for a conservative mm -hmm. website, they would he would have been fired over that. That's the, yes. like that wasn't yeah. something, that, that's something that any workplace would have taken action against. So I like, I can't, I guess, blame the, the newspapers for canceling the cartoon, even though I think it's I think it's regrettable, obviously, that the whole situation has come about. I, and I appreciate Dilbert, the comic. I think it's funny, independent of what I might think of, you know, Scott Adams and his views. So, I mean, that's a whole other conversation. Can you appreciate art while really abhorring aspects of the artist? Um, but unfortunately, we don't have time to talk about it. Maybe we'll have you back, Denise, and we'll get into that. Um, thank you so much, Denise, for joining us. Good to see you. Thank you so much. More rising right after this.
President Biden's student loan debt relief plan is on the chopping block. On Tuesday, the Supreme Court will hear arguments about whether his proposal to forgive up to $20,000 in debt belonging to qualifying borrowers is constitutional. Now, the administration says that Education Secretary Miguel Cardona has full authority under the HEROES Act to forgive the debt. So the HEROES Act was passed after 9-11, and it gave the Education Secretary the power to waive or tweak federal student financial assistance programs in times of war or national emergency. Former President Trump began using this measure at the onset of the, onset of the pandemic, but mm. President Biden then expanded it. Mm. Um, so what do you think, Robbie? Well, so I, I, you and I are both you know, very skeptical and, and opposing of the student debt forgiveness plan. Brianna, our other co-host, co is very, very, very supportive of it. Uh, but I think even she uh, concedes that the HEROES Act argument is not very compelling for, be, for the rationale to be able to do this. And she would point to you know, other—she thinks it is perfectly constitutional, but she would point to other laws that— that she thinks gives uh, the executive the power to do that. The problem with the HEROES Act is that it was clearly just not designed to cover this sort of circumstance. It was about forgiving loan debt for veterans, who are, for, you know, for people who are taking up, answering the call to serve America in the wars on terror. Um, also, it, it, even if we're reading HEROES Act to, to have the kind of emergency that would include a pandemic, the pandemic is over. Joe Biden said the words, the pandemic is over. So how would he still have the authority to do this if we're not in that emergency anymore? So it was really a very bad justification. And actually, I think there are some on the left who support student debt relief who think Biden chose this, you know, who kind of have a very anti-Biden mindset and think he was, like, deliberately sabotaging this by using this justification because it's not going to hold up in the Supreme Court. But I, I guess we'll have to see. I don't like the policy, so I would be happy to see it defeated by whatever means, and I don't think the HEROES Act covers it. But, uh, but you know, what are you expecting to see from the Supreme Court justices? Well, I, I think Brianna has um, made a very convincing argument that this was designed to fail, right? Mm -hmm. So whether you like it or not, she makes the argument that this, you can't, you know, you can't give Biden credit for being a progressive for having done this because he did it in a way where it was designed to fail so that he wouldn't then have to take responsibility for the, the political fallout. And I think she's done a great job of substantiating that argument. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I couldn't say which way the, the, the Supreme Court is going to go. But uh, just again, you know, you know, I think if you if they had limited it to Americans who started college and now work in the service industry, right? There are, you know, about 10% of service industry workers have some college under their belt, right? These are people who are making, you know, 20, 30, 50, $60,000 a year and paying student loans, right? I think a lot of Americans feel for people like that who tried to go the college route, it didn't work out, and now are stuck without the benefit of a college degree, but while paying those loans. I, I think a lot of Americans, including myself, uh, have a lot of sympathy for people stuck in that situation. The people we don't have sympathy for are people who are also would be um, counted under this for forgiveness, who are at the beginning of what is going to turn into an extremely lucrative career, you know, making $75,000 a year, right? 
beginning of, you know, maybe they are a law clerk, right? Maybe they are, you know, in their first job as an accountant, right? Um, even somebody like a dental hygienist, right, who might have some student loan, right? But they're going to be making good money at some point. And for those people to get a, a bailout from working class Americans, from all those service industry workers who didn't get the benefit of a college degree, from all those people who maybe went to trade school, right, and paid off their loans, right? And, you know, it's it, there's something about that that it just, it just, you know, one rebels against it, especially when you think about, you know, who is likely to have to be in the home ownership class. It's overwhelmingly people with a college degree mm -hmm. are not struggling in the same way. Maybe they are millennials in 30s and 40s, right? Early, early 20s, 30s, right? These people are behind where many of their parents were at, but they are going to catch up as they get into their late 40s, certainly by their 50s. Um, so the idea that a college degree now buys you less privilege over working class Americans than it did your parents' generation. I'm sorry, but to me, that's just not the civil rights cause that progressives want me to believe it is. And we're, we're kicking the can down the road in terms of addressing the real problem, which is the cost problem. It, and and for this, on this part of it, the students, the, you know, the frustrated debtors are absolutely right that it's, it's ridiculous that they had to go into this level of debt to pay for college. This wasn't true a generation or, go, a generation or two ago where you could, you could work and you could afford college and then, and then the diploma you know, gave you a, a chance, a good chance at, uh, at a middle class lifestyle or beyond. That's not doable anymore because the price is just, has gotten insane. But we have to we have to scrutinize you know why that is. It's the most higher education is it like aggressively subsidized and clear, clearly making these loans has had a distorting effect on the price. Meanwhile, the colleges have just all recklessly hired armies of bureaucrats and you know they make nicer dorms and they invest in everything but the actual quality of the education, but the actual instruction. They they didn't raise you know it's, we're not in this crisis because professors are being paid too much. Their wages have barely budged. They haven't hired more of them. They actually they've passed the work onto, onto adjuncts who are paid you know, starvation wages. Uh, so it's, it's a totally out of whack system. We have to talk about reforming that. I, I think it's fine for state universities, for, for institutions that are state managed and that are supported by the taxpayers of a state. Well, those institutions should be affordable to taxpayers. They could, the, I'm, the legislature could cap the amount they're allowed to charge for a credit. That's something peer nations do. That makes all the sense in the world to me. I don't think the government should make the whole thing free. You should, because primarily the benefit, because then again, we're subsidizing people who get more of a benefit. The people who are directly getting the benefit are the ones who should pay for it. But it should be affordable the way it used to be. And we, and we can change that. We could do that. But nobody's really proposing doing that. I know it's very frustrating. And then, you know, when you do have certain things, you have, for example, um, Ron DeSantis, who's who's now, you know, trying to take over the board of a public university and sort of create a less wokeified curriculum, which, you know, God bless him. I think that's a great idea, but it doesn't get to the problem that you just mentioned, which is these rising costs due in many cases to DEI consultants and whatnot, right? Um, which is, you know, if a college degree used to be the pathway to upward mobility. Today, it's sort of the gatekeeper because it is so exorbitant. It is so expensive. And instead, you know, I mean, I believe that we should be taking all of this public money and putting it into, into, into vocational training. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at the job market, that's where we're missing workers, right? Who are tra highly trained labor 
highly trained working class Americans to take those jobs. That's where the big labor shortage is. It's not, there's no labor shortage of, you know, college professors and journalists, right? You know, that's all sort of taken care of. Um, so we're in this sort of elite overproduction situation. Um, and, and, and I would say take all that public funding and put it where we need it most. Yeah, or don't uh, you know? Don't do exactly what they're doing now. We'll, we'll be yeah. back in this situation. You could forgive all this debt, or uh, exactly what the Biden plan wants to do. And a couple years later, it will have been reaccumulated because we haven't changed the underlying 100%. incentives whatsoever. In fact, they're going to make the incentives worse by do doing this plan uh, where you can have the debt forgiven if you just pay a portion of your income, which the Biden plan wants to move to, that idea on its own is not a terrible idea if it was just that. But because you still have the loan system, well, <laughs> if nobody is going to be paying back what they actually borrowed and the government's just going to pay it back and you're going to pay back you know, part of your income, there's, again, what is the limiting factor to stop the college from just, they could charge a trillion dollars for tuition. They charge a trillion dollars, you borrow a trillion dollars, you pay 10% of your income, and, and like and everybody, everybody wins except the taxpayers who actually have to pay the trillion dollars. It makes no sense. So uh, I, I'm, I'll be interested to see what the Supreme Court decides about this version of the Biden plan. I, I don't think they will like the Heroes Act justification, but we will have to see, and we'll have more rising right after this. In his new memoir, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis recounts his conversation with former Disney CEO Bob Chapek over the Florida Parental Rights in Education bill, which activists labeled the Don't Say Gay bill. Now, DeSantis writes, as the controversy over the parental rights in education bill was coming to a head, Chapek called me. He did not want Disney to get involved, but he was getting a lot of pressure to weigh in against the bill. Adding that Chapek told him, we get pressured all the time, but this time it's different. I haven't seen anything like this before. According to a report from the New York Post, Chapek had privately expressed his hesitancy to involve his company in the political issues in Florida, the home of Disney World, but a pressure campaign within Disney and Democrats nationwide convinced him to take a stand. Mm. Uh, what do you make of this uh, this revelation, Robbie? So this is coming from DeSantis, obviously. So this is you know one side of the story from a, a explicitly political actor, right, Governor DeSantis. Um, so take that for what it's worth. But um, I, it, it rings true, certainly. I think there are a lot of CEOs, I think JPEG's not the only one, who don't actually want to get involved in cultural battles, but they're so afraid of activist pressure that they get involved and then they regret it. And maybe they're, they're learning or they're realizing over time that they actually don't need to get involved, that the, the number of angry, the, the outraged activist people, it sounds like a lot of people because social media is kind of distortive in this way, is distorting, has a distorting effect. But when actually the, the, the real, the customers don't care very much. And, and in fact, you can risk alienating conservative customers by appearing to only care what liberal activists are, are telling you to care about. Right. So there's actually another quote in the memoir that gets exactly to that. So let me read that. Um, DeSantis also wrote in his memoir that, quote, if Disney stayed out of the politics, Disney would face 48 hours of outrage when the bill passed. When I sign it, you will get another 48 hours of outrage, mostly online. Then there will be some new outrage that the woke mob will focus on and people will forget about this issue, especially considering the outrage is directed at a political media narrative, not the actual text of the legislation itself. 
So in order, in other words, to DeSantis, the lesson of the Disney confrontation is an environment of, you know, what he calls, quote, woke capital, old guard corporate republicanism mm. is not up to the task at hand. What do you mm. make of this quote? I, I don't know about that. Well, look, there is a double-edged sword here because I, as much as I don't like some of uh, the, the some of the examples of corporations bowing to kind of liberal activists, um, I, I also think then Republicans can go too far the other way and like, well, then they're ordering corporations around, and it's like, well, everybody's ordering corporations around. I mean, this has been a problem. It's a problem with for social media companies. This is a, a problem for for uh, for companies like Disney. I get that they're now everyone is trying to. It's like everything has to be mandatory or banned, and there's no just like <laughs> like leave leave the companies alone to make the decisions they think are best, and if they're bad, then you don't have to be a customer anymore. And they, I don't think they should face undue pressure from liberal activists, and they should also not face pressure from Ron DeSantis. But we're, we're very much moving away from this world. And I guess Ron DeSantis says this is not, a, this is not the times we're living in anymore. Uh, but of course, you know, he comes from a small government libertarian perspective, a Tea Party perspective, and, you know, 15 years ago or even 10 years ago, probably would have said, yeah, no, it's totally, in a, it, this is not, a, we're not going to tell them what to do. Then what happened is that so many corporations started just explicitly listening to progressive activists, and Republicans decided they ought to do something about it. I don't know that that was a necessarily a smart decision in the long term or like a philosophically consistent one, but that's, that's where the Republican Party is now. Yeah, I mean, I definitely felt uncomfortable with the, this feeling of that he's punishing political mm -hmm. speech from a corporation. I mean, of course, you know, on the left, we don't really necessarily believe corporations have rights the way that people do on the right. But, um, yeah. you know, it, it did feel a little bit like, you know, there was a potential First Amendment issue here. Now, I imagine what he would say to that is, you know, there's so much woke stuff happening at the government level, and we never call that a First Amendment issue, right? When they, you know, mandate all sorts of trainings and so forth, um, you know, that, 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 that correspond with the woke agenda that could fly in the face of somebody's First Amendment rights. I mean, I remember once having to take some sort of um, um, an online, you know, certification, something I think from the state of New York that you very much, you, you had to, they asked you to affirm certain things that I could easily see would fly in the face of somebody's religious beliefs, for example. And you, know, you have no choice. You have to click, you know, yes, I affirm this, what I would have you, um, you know, so the, the, I, the, certainly there are potential issues, First Amendment violations and issues there as well. Um, he, what I do think he is 100% correct on is that the media created the don't say gay narrative to smear him as homophobic when in truth the what the bill really should have been called is you know you can't talk to my kid about sex and your genitals until they have passed eight, you know until they're eight years old or older right like that mm -hmm. would be a much more accurate definition of that and when you say it like that which is what the actual text of the bill says you know who what what reasonable person could like object to that I mean there are you know there are some people who object to that but th that is definitely, I mean, he is right that in terms of where Americans, 70%, 75% Americans are at on that issue, he has a mandate. And and so, you know, I mean, I think that's what I kind of, when I keep thinking about DeSantis, what I want is for him to learn from President Trump's strengths and President Trump's weaknesses. You know, I think President Trump's strength was he, he, he recognized that mandate, that there was a huge plurality of Americans who had been forgotten and erased and silenced. And he said, I'm going to speak for you. And whenever he does that,
that, like when he showed up in East Palestine, like that's that's why they see him as this tribune. You know, then when he's at his worst is when he's asking them to defend him. Right. When he's asking mm-hmm. them to take up his cause, you know, these people stole everything from me. I need you to mobilize on my behalf. No, that's that's not your job is to represent them, not the other way around. And, you know, I see in DeSantis both impulses on the one hand, wanting to speak up for the forgotten Americans, for uh, for the average Americans, normal, normie people. Right. But yeah. on the other hand, every once in a while, you do see it veer a little bit into, well, this has become his crusade. And now he's asking for sort of people to, to, to take up his cause. Um, and I think that that's a really interesting distinction. And, and I'm sure it's going to come up in the in the election. With the don't say gay bill, I, I think I definitely think the media exaggerated some aspects of it. I, I did recall, but maybe this wasn't in the front version of the bill. I, I I can't quite remember. Maybe you know what level of because yes, I agree that you know teachers don't need to talk to very young kids about controversial gender or sex topics that their that parents don't want them talking to. Yeah, fine. Um, but I like LGBT teenagers, I think, should be able to confide in their counselors at school if they feel like doing that. And th- that was my concern about the language, the reading of the bill. Look, I- ideally, you know, everyone should just go to whatever school I would support again, school choice. I say this whenever we talk about these issues that, you know, you the, the child, their family, et cetera, can pick a good school that, you know, kind of matches their views or the experience they want to have instead of just having like the government decide the way it should be for all schools, which like I don't think a one-size-fits-all approach is good. But uh, I, I guess I would say I would, you know, I would certainly not, like, prohibit public school, public high schools from, you know, letting counselors talk to kids about sex and gender. I mean, that, that happens even in, even in, I went to Catholic school, there's still, you know, they, you get the talk eventually, right? There, there is some level of discussion of these subjects that is not, like, new or weird or progressive or verboten in my view, but, and I, I probably not in most I think, families. I, I mean, to me, I think the language was to my, the best of my recollection, the language focused on if the child starts to transition or change mm-hmm. some aspect of their identity, if the teacher is calling them by a different name, that has to be treated like a, any other psychological or medical change, which right now by, by, by law, it is mandated that the teachers inform the parents of any kind of medical intervention or anything like that. So to my, to my recollection, the bill said this must be treated just like those things. And I would say to you, Robbie, like my, my question would be, I mean, I like what percentage of parents when they send their kids to public school are opting for a school that's going to keep it from them when everyone starts calling their child a different name. I imagine it is a small minority. And so to me, it seems almost like the default should be you must tell the parents. And if there is a plurality of parents at a public school that decide, no, you know what, we're okay with a massive change happening to our child. We don't need to be informed about it. Let them speak up and change things to suit them after that, because to me, it seems like the, I mean, I'm not a parent, but it seems like the default for parents is, you know, of course, if something major is happening to my child, if everyone in this school is calling my child by a different name, you know, I must be informed of that. And I I did my radar on this letter calling out the New York Times for its trans coverage by activists, Mm -hmm. you know, staffers and employees and so forth. But, you know, those, one of the articles that they were denouncing was this extremely liberal parent group, these parents, very, very liberal, 
totally on board with their child being trans, but not on board with not having been informed about yeah. it. And by the way, a lot of the kids in the article, I, I certainly remember one, I think it was more than one, were autistic. And so that has to be factored into it. It has to be factored into it. And and on the smearing of DeSantis, I just want to bring up one other thing. I'm sure you guys talked about this last week, but Andrea Mitchell, in an interview with Kamala Harris, um, she asked, one of the questions she asked Vice President Harris was, what do you make of um, Ron DeSantis banning discussions of American history and slavery in the classroom, which is an outright falsehood. The Stop Woke Act actually mandates that school children be taught about racism and slavery. So in response, DeSantis's team said, forget it, we're not giving any interviews to MSNBC or any NBC affiliate until she apologizes, because in her question, she literally outright lied about what he was actually doing. And I just expect there to be a lot more of that because of what I said earlier, because of the mandate he represents. Like if he was actually banning slave teaching slavery in schools, you know, that would be great for Democrats because that would be appalling and we would all get it, right? That that's really terrible because 95% of Americans, literally that's an actual study, want slavery and racism taught to high school students. They have to lie about him to make it worth critiquing because they know that the things he's doing are very popular, not just Republicans, but also with Democrats. Again, going back to the don't say gay bill, uh, I, I would I would say if, if, the, if the student is like is like publicly going by a different name it seems very silly to like it's it's public it's known it seems very silly to like deliberately not inform parents of that so i would agree with you on that i guess if but if they privately like speak to a counselor or something about a sex or gender issue i don't think i would want the counselor to be immediately obligated to snitch to their parents i mm -hmm. like so for me this calls for like reflect like it would be different in different circumstances and I would uh, hope that most school employees are acting competently in the best interests of both the child and their families and I would probably want to leave it to their discretion because I don't think you could necessarily write a law that covers all of the, like those two very different circumstances which is I get would make that's why I'm skeptical of like that well here's what here's what all the schools should do but because um, it's a difficult it can be a difficult thing to balance when you get into the teenage years I think obviously I understand why parents you know don't want teachers or anyone introducing these concepts without their permission um, earlier on but it's a I don't know. I think it's. I think there's some room for nuance on it. Uh, that does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, News Nation's Brian Enton will join us to go over the latest in the Alex Murdoch murder trial, which is not something we've covered yet on the show. But I know a lot of people have questions about it and people are interested, so we'll talk about that. Bacha, it was wonderful having you with us. Great to be with you, and I will be watching you all week. Mm, thank you. Well, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere podcasts are available. Take care, and I'll see you back here tomorrow.